Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. So a really long clap, thank you. I think that's mostly my husband. Um, <laughs> Cheers, babes. Um, so hello. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, as I said, my name is Alicia. Um, I've been a member of Christchurch for about eight years, um, ever since I was a student here in London at King's College. I studied war studies and history. Um, I'll let you uh, think about what that means about me. But um, I'm, I'm married to Stephen, whom actually, conveniently, I also met at church about seven years ago. Um, I would say, however, when we first met, it definitely wasn't love at first sight. Um, I saw him after being introduced to, uh, by one of my friends who told me that he worked in recruitment, and I'd just graduated from university and was desperate for a job. Um, <laughs> So uh, she introduced us, and this charming guy had a job going for someone that didn't have a clue what they wanted to do. So uh, over the course of the week, I'd given him my CV, and we had what I thought was quite a professional conversation about my skills. I didn't have many at that time, and experience, which was also quite limited. Um, And things were kind of going professionally. Uh, He put me um, in line for a potential job, Until one day, halfway through the week, um, I then get what I think was probably the most creepy chat-up line I've ever heard of. Uh, Sorry, babes, I didn't warn you about this. Um, He basically was like, "Uh, would you like to go for a drink with me sometime before I start treating you like a commodity? Um, (laughs) I showed this to my mom. I was like, this guy clearly really fancies me. Um, He didn't, but... Uh, he just he said he just wanted to get to know me better, which was very nice. Um, we went out for that drink, which was lovely, and I knew he definitely fancied me halfway through our conversation when I said something hilarious, uh, and he enthusiastically slapped me on the thigh. <laughs> I was like, what a winner. Um, <laughs> happily, we've been together ever since, and you might also be pleased to hear that uh, we finally managed to find me a job after about a year of trying. So if you're a student right now, don't give up hope. You might get employed one day. Um, We managed to find me a job in management consulting, which is very nice, um, and a very long-winded way of saying, I don't work for the church. (laughs) But very kindly, the leadership had given me the opportunity to um, share my thoughts with you today. So, today we are continuing our current series on the encounters that Jesus had with different people during his ministry on earth. And um, as you will have noticed from the reading, we're going to be meditating together on the amazing encounter that he had with Mary Magdalene, three days after he had been crucified, killed, and buried. And astonishingly, after being certified dead and in the tomb for three days, Jesus comes back to life and he meets his friend and follower, Mary. Which honestly, to me, if he hadn't um, then gone on to meet hundreds of other people who then gave up and risked their lives uh, to attest to the fact that they had met him and he was who he said he was, might sound like a hallucination or at least wish fulfillment. 
And we're going to use this um, amazing encounter that Mary had with Jesus to explore probably one of the greatest philosophical issues of history, and that is the problem of death. So uh, nice and light. Um, (laughs) One thing I've noticed through this series as well, actually, is how many times Jesus did things and said things um, that we and his contemporaries just wouldn't have expected. What he loved to do was break the social norms and expectations of the day. So I think of two examples through this series in particular. Um, The first being the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And at that time, for a Jewish leader to go up to a strange woman in a public place, um, who not only was a woman, but a part of an enemy political group, would have been as radical as somebody from the National Front going up on a beach to chat to someone in a burkini. It just wouldn't have happened. These groups did not speak to each other. But Jesus overcomes these gender and racial boundaries and goes to speak to her about how he can bring her life. Or there's the other story that we heard about during this series of Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, one of the most respected religious groups at the time. So nowadays, because, you know, in the church, we we do a lot of boo and hiss about um, the Pharisees because we know how hypocritical they were. Uh, We kind of think, oh, they're kind of baddies. But at the time... Um, This would have been the equivalent of Jesus going up to the Archbishop of York or the Dalai Lama or equivalent and saying, you've got your view of God completely wrong and you're going to have to be born again and re-experience God as if you were a newborn baby. This is a man who goes into situations and turns people's preconceptions completely upside down. And I think what's also funny when you read the account, it's not like Jesus doesn't warn people he's going to do this. He often says in advance, I'm going to do these amazing miracles. Um, I'm here to uh, bring God's kingdom to earth, not the kingdom that you're expecting. Um, But it's not until he actually does these astonishing things and breaks into these situations um, that people realize he's going to do it. And often they're completely shocked. And I think as a side note, I find that quite reassuring. So often it's very easy to hear messages from people we respect or hear advice, but it's not until it actually personally affects you um, that it really can transform you. And I think today's example is probably the most stark uh, example of this phenomenon. So Jesus has been warning his disciples almost for the whole of his ministry to expect this amazing miracle. Um, He's been warning them that he's going to... um, be resurrected, but when it happens, they're completely shocked and unprepared for it. So uh, just before I go into this, I'm going to advertise some reusable water items. Um, Before we dive into the passage, though, let's learn a bit more about the other main character, Mary Magdalene. So we're going to have a lovely picture of Mary Magdalene. This is a very uh, normal depiction of Mary. She's wearing a low-cut dress and, like, fondling herself. Uh, She's (laughs) often depicted as holding an alabaster jar. And that's because traditionally in our culture, Mary Magdalene is associated um, as the sexually sinful uh, woman who anoints Jesus uh, in Galilee. In fact, it seems that Mary has been victim of the same mishap as Ivanka Madec. I don't know if you guys saw this in Twitter a few months ago. Um, Ivanka uh, got 
confused by Donald Trump for his own daughter in a tweet, um, but actually they're very different women. If you've ever read the Gospels, it's okay, we can put Ivanka down. I just love that picture. She looks so awful. Um, If you've you've ever read the Gospels and uh, ever taken an interest into Jesus' interactions with women, you'll notice that there are actually quite a few women who are named um, and mentioned as people who are really involved in his ministry. So you would know uh, Martha, Anna, Joanna, Susanna, Herodias, Elizabeth, Salome, Mary, 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 and Mary, because that's right, there are six different Marys who are individually named in the Gospels. That's more than half um, of all of the women that are named. And I think if we uh, take into account the fact that often lots of people couldn't either read the Gospel or they were reading it in Latin, um, when some of these myths around Mary Magdalene came about, you can understand why people got her mixed up. But for the purposes of today's sermon, just so we can clear up who this lady is, um, there is two stories in the Gospels about two different women anointing Jesus' feet. One of them is... um, pulled out as a sexually promiscuous woman. And that's why it was so astonishing that Jesus allowed himself to be touched by this woman. People um, thought that it was shocking that he did that. But Jesus loves everyone, man, and he's pretty accepting. There's um, another woman who's mentioned in that account who uh, is Mary, um, often uh, also known as the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She's described as the one that used to sit at Jesus' feet, also another term for a disciple um, of Jesus. And she anoints Jesus' feet before the crucifixion and happens, by coincidence, to have the same name as Mary Magdalene. Actually, if you read the Gospels at all, you'll notice that there is no indication that Mary Magdalene was sexually promiscuous. What you will notice, however, is that she still had a very troubled past, Um, We have a lovely introduction to Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8, which we're going to have up on the screen now, where it says, Soon afterwards, he, which is Jesus, went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and affirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household, ma- Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Mary was an, uh, one of a number uh, of women who had packed up their lives and were the financial backers for Jesus' ministry. They paid for him and the disciples to go around doing their stuff and seemingly were also involved in the work that he was doing. Now, when you read this story, if you're anything like me, what you would really love is a kind of Hello Magazine expo of what it would be like for Mary to have experienced being afflicted by demons. Um, Unfortunately, the Gospels don't provide that in this um, instance. But what we do see through the other stories um, are other examples of how people um, are affected when they are, as the terminology is in the Bible, afflicted by demons. So in Matthew 5, for example, we see another story of somebody afflicted by demons who had removed himself completely from society, and he was roaming around the tombstones, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And what we see in the Gospels is when people have, um, uh, have cases of being afflicted by demons, uh, they are uh, 
they isolate themselves from their family, their friends, because of the power um, that this has over their minds and bodies. Um, we might call that different names today. I'm not sure. Maybe we would call it mental illness, or maybe it's something else entirely. Probably won't go into it um, at all today, but what we uh, can see and what is clear is that Mary would have been in a place of serious desperation. She would have been what you could describe as in a place of spiritual and emotional death. And Jesus comes in and he gives her everything back. She's now got control over her body, her mind, her money, her actions, and her physical and emotional faculties. And unusually for some of the other accounts of people that are afflicted by demons, um, Jesus invites her to come along with him on his ministry. And she dedicates her life with this other group of women to serving him. So now that we know a bit more about um, this person, Mary Magdalene, and with the knowledge of her story in mind, um, as somebody whose life had been completely transformed by Jesus, I was imagining what it would have been like for Mary on the morning of the resurrection. The text says uh, that she got to the tomb early before sunrise. When I've heard about other people's stories of grief, sleeplessness is often a big part of the grieving process. My friends have spoken about crying all night, um, having night terrors and waking up and realizing that awful things, uh, things more awful in real life have happened than were even in your dreams. And maybe she was counting down the hours until the end of the Sabbath when she could go and attend to a ceremonially unclean body. Maybe she'd woken up with a start, dreaming that the worst had happened. I wonder if in her mind as well, she played over some of the humiliation and suffering that she witnessed in the, ex in the execution and the crucifixion of Jesus as she and the other women prepared to go and be near his body. Because by the time that Jesus died, his body was a complete mess. On the night before he died, the gospels say that he was in such emotional anguish that he started sweating blood. Have you ever smelt yourself when you've been worried or upset and then had to have like an emergency lynx um, to cover it up? But that kind of weird tangy musk would have been mixed with the metallic swell of blood. His hair would have been matted and tangled, full of blood and pus from when they had driven thorns into his head to make a mock crown. His skin on the, his back would have been completely in tatters mangled up and torn from whips that had laid into him 39 times. Across his arms and shoulders, his skin would have been splintered and grazed and bruised as he had to tug a heavy cross um, up a hill. And then after he died, the Roman soldiers put a spear in his side to check that he was dead. And the gospel accounts say that then his body was flooded with a clear internal liquid, evidence that he was in fact dead. And then once dead, he would have lost control of his bowels and his bladder. So his legs and feet would have been covered in feces and piss. This is not a glorious image. This is a brutal and savage description of death. 
I don't know how you feel now after I've done this, but I definitely felt really uncomfortable as I came to preparing this talk, thinking about death. Because I think in our culture, there's so much taboo around death. And as I tried to think about why that was, the main thing I actually hit upon was that for most of us, because of the wonder of modern medicine and hygiene, death is quite a faraway thing. People just don't seem to die like they used to. I remember reading some accounts when I was doing history about when people would have flu or very minor infections. They often would say goodbye before they went into their sickbed because people were afraid that they wouldn't come back after a few days, that they would die of really simple things. But we don't really experience that in the same way so much anymore, which in itself is amazing. And I think that our distance from death and the cultural taboo that sits around it makes it much easier for us to ignore. But it's inevitable. It's an inevitable reality for us. And I think it's a problem then, because of its inevitability, that troubles us that we like to avoid. And I think there are three reasons really why it's such an issue for us. I think pain... Uh, that death is a problem for us because it is painful and ugly, because it deprives us of those that we love, and ultimately, it deprives us of ourselves. So those that know me well know that I'm one of those people that probably goes out of their way to avoid any physical discomforts. And I can say this with firm evidence because... Um, I compare myself to my sister, who has the most amazing Instagram page. So before I've got up in the morning to have a shower, she's already been out at 6 a.m. to some hardcore body attack, which sounds awful, and involves things like running quickly, um, which I'm really not built for. Um, she also has several tattoos in quite sensitive areas, like her inner wrist and her feet. And I asked her to describe what that experience uh, was like. And what she told me basically sounds like being repeatedly stabbed with tiny knives. Like, I'm not up for that. If you look at my Instagram in comparison, you'll notice that it's full of pictures of flowers. And that's because my understanding of exercise is walking slowly through National Trust properties, taking pictures of wisteria. <laughs> But actually, tattoos and gym sessions aside, in general, most humans will go out of their way to avoid pain. And that's because we're intrinsically wired to protect our bodies, right? Pain is a messenger that something bad is happening. And we definitely also have this concept of a good versus a bad death. So a good death often is where someone has lived a good long life and their death is quick and painless. At least she didn't suffer is often a phrase used to console mourners. At least he was comfortable. And death is a problem for us because pain and suffering are real and they're unpleasant and they're things that we go out of our way to avoid. In fact, Jesus' death is not one that I would wish on anyone. Death is also a problem because it deprives us of the people that we love and the people that we are with them. And because I've heard that you're all very intelligent students, I'm now going to use a chemistry concept to explain this. Uh, so there's a short video that's going to come up. Um, 
So this video is here to uh, describe a concept called oxidizing agents. So my husband once very sweetly said to me that I was his oxidizing agent, and then we had to Google it, um, <laughs> which, really, uh, which really helped. But it's basically the idea that um, in a chemical reaction, you add an additional chemical substance to make a reaction more powerful and effective. So in this lovely example here, um, our, the first person that I saw on YouTube is trying to burn some sugar. In the first example, he burnt it and it didn't really work out very well. In the second one, he adds some potassium permanganate and you can see it started to burn up quite well. In the third one, he goes mental and adds potassium nitrate. Um, and as you'll see, he kills his ducks. He doesn't actually, um, but <laughs> you, can, you see it burns up really big, and this is, the, this is the chemical agent that I like to think that I am at parties. Um, but in all three examples, you've got the same fuel, the same base fuel, which is sugar, but by introducing a different uh, chemical compound, you have a more powerful and vivid um, reaction. And Stephen says that our loved ones are a bit like that. They help us to experience things in new ways, ways that are more powerful, more vivid. I'm sure you've had this experience, right? When you're sat with your best friends from home who have known you for years and everything feels amazing and fun and more alive. Or maybe like when you're working on a project with someone at work or at uni and you challenge each other and you're able to build something that is much more impressive and meaningful than anything that you could make by yourself. We experience different facets of ourselves with different people. They bring out a richness and variety in our lives that we don't have with other people. And I think that's because we're intrinsically social animals. We, the way we relate to each other is part of our experience, and it actually helps to define who we are. In Mary's grief, I see the fear and loneliness of losing the people that help you to find the edges of yourself. Jesus was the one that gave her back her dignity, her self-control, her agency. He was the person that she planned her whole life around. She'd been moving places, place to place, praying for people, laughing with them, casting out demons, healing the sick, all in the power of this person, Jesus. So who was she without him? Everything she had was built around this man, and he was gone. And I hear the desperation when she's at the tomb, and she says, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. With Jesus, the last thing she had was his broken, dirty shell, and seemingly even that had been taken away from him. This was the man who several weeks earlier had said he was the resurrection and the life, whom she had seen raise a man who was five days dead from the grave. But how can a dead person raise themselves? Which I think brings me to the third problem that I see here with death, our own descent into nothingness. Loss is frightening because it exposes our own vulnerability to death. We're physically susceptible to decay and destruction, and we'll ultimately experience the end of ourselves. And that's frightening. It's frightening to think that we'll become nothing, and we'll lose the capability to feel and think and see. And I think one of the responses in our culture to death is to tell us that to believe in a life after death is a fantasy. 
constructed by human beings to help us cope with an idea too frightening to comprehend. And that the best thing we can do is just face up to it and find as much meaning as we can in this life, because really, it's not that bad. And um, we're going to watch another short clip, one of two, um, where Stephen Fry really beautifully uh, narrates what I see as the main kind of secular view um, of, of death in our culture. What should we think about death? One thing we can be sure of is that we will die. Everybody will. Some people do not like the thought of this and don't accept it. They prefer to think that death is not the end of us, but that we might live on, perhaps in another life on earth or in another place where people are rewarded or punished. But wanting something to be true is not the same as it being true. And there is no evidence to support the idea that our minds could survive the end of our bodies. What sense could we make of the things that we value? Love, experience, communication, achievements, the warmth of the sun on our face, if we were disembodied? And if life were eternal, wouldn't it lose much of what gives it shape, structure, meaning and purpose? Think about reading a good book or eating a delicious cake. These may be great pleasures, but one of the things that makes them pleasures is that they come to an end. A book that went on and on forever, and a cake that you never stopped eating, would both soon lose their appeal. Death is a natural part of life. It makes sense for us to try not to be afraid of this, but instead to come to terms with it. Death is a natural part of life, and we need to come to terms with it. There are definitely some things that I agree with in this video. That's probably why for a long time um, I kept coming back to this video to use it as a test for my faith. I agree with Stephen Fry that we need bodies to experience life. I also agree with him on another profound point, is that it is definitely possible to eat too much cake. But... However, I don't agree with his presentation that just because we need bodies to experience life, that there is necessarily no such thing as an afterlife. I also disagree with him when he says that death isn't really that bad. Firstly, on the cake one, actually, just need to get this out of the way. Logically, not wanting to experience the same thing indefinitely is not the same thing as not wanting to experience ever again. They're two different things, actually. Just because I want to finish my cake doesn't mean that I never want to enjoy the physical sensation of eating again. And actually, the people that I have spoken to or heard stories from who are elderly and say sad things like, I don't want to be alive anymore, in general are not tired of being alive. They're tired of their ability to not enjoy life because they're in pain or they're suffering. I also don't actually think the Bible disagrees with him about the whole bodies thing. We do need a body to experience life. Jesus did not come back as a disembodied spirit. He came back as a fully flesh human who ate, walked, and talked. 
And his body was described as being completely restored. He wasn't pale and bleeding and stooped over in pain, as he would have been if he had been tortured to within an inch of his life, wrapped in 70 pounds of burial clothes and spices, stored underground without food or water for three days, and then stumbled out of the tomb. This was a body that people saw and thought evidenced the fact that there would be life eternal and that a resurrected life um, would be available for them too. Because actually, this whole story is much bigger than Jesus just having a resurrected life. What Jesus says and what he sends Mary out to say is not just like, hey guys, look at me, I got lucky, like I'm back. He's actually saying, I have a resurrected body so that you can have one too. A body that God will protect from pain and suffering. And to go back to Stephen Fry, I wish I knew how it worked, but I don't. Some materialist theologians um, have proposed the idea that Jesus creates a copy of our DNA and our memories and transports that into um, the new heaven. If you've ever had the pleasure of working on an IT project for the management consultants out there, um, you will have experienced this phenomenon when we do data cleanses and we transfer data from one system into a new system. Other people have argued that there is actually a physical, a non-physical component of ourself something that we might call a spirit, that we can't physically observe, but we experience the effects of. I don't know. But the fact is, or the fact that I or anybody else in 2017 doesn't understand the mechanics of how this might happen doesn't mean that it is impossible for it to happen in the future. If you went back to um, 500 years ago and said, oh, in 2017, we're going to have these massive metal vehicles that can uh, hold hundreds of people and travel them around the world in less than a day, they might have thought that you were crazy. They might have given you evidence, uh, asked you to give evidence of the mechanics of how that could happen. Yes, we've seen birds come back to life. Yes, maybe we've seen Jesus come back to life, but that doesn't mean that you can do it. But the fact is we now transport millions of people by airplane every day. Just because we don't understand how it will happen doesn't mean it will not happen. So outside of just wanting there to be an afterlife because we're afraid of death, why do we actually believe that there is life after death? What do we base that belief on? What's our evidence base for it? Um, From what I can deduce, I think Christians have two main groups of evidence for believing that there is a life after death. The first one firmly does rest upon the um, assumption that you believe that there is a God. So if you believe that this universe can't have made it here by itself. And the first one is basically the words that um, Christians believe that Jesus and God has said to people, either through the prophets or the accounts of um, God himself. There's basically people... um, Christians believe that God actually wants to speak to humans and that the only way that we can actually really understand it is through somebody physically speaking. And if you want to have an interesting exercise after this and go through other possible ways that um, God could communicate you, you'll realize that they're actually quite limited. So that's the first one, that we believe that God has spoken to people about this. The second, and this is a real cincher for me, is the physical and historical fact that Jesus had the power to raise himself from the dead. Jesus in his ministry claimed that life after death was a reality. And not only that, but you get to choose whether you want to spend that with God or not. 
And the word that Christians use to describe a life without God um, is an ugly word. Like It's a very frightening word in our culture, but we call it hell. And um, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's fire and torment. What it means is that every, we believe as Christians that every good thing comes from God. Um, and if you choose that you don't want to live with him, you're basically removing yourself from that life with him in the next life. Um, probably one for another day. Um, but Christians believe that Jesus evidenced his authority, the fact that he is God through his ability to um, control the natural world. This is the man that was able to control the weather, to heal people that were sick, raise people from the dead, drive out demons, and ultimately um, to bring himself back to life. But if you look at the accounts of the first witnesses of the resurrections, it's clear that most of Jesus' followers were just as skeptical as Stephen Fry about whether it was really possible for Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he spent ages saying that he would. Mary was one of Jesus' followers. She would have been there when, she said, when he said things like, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and must be killed and on the third day raised from life. But despite that, she still goes to his tomb to grieve for him. She expects him to stay dead. And when she goes to the dark tomb and sees that the stone has been rolled away, she thinks it's been uh, robbed by grave robbers, that he has been taken and laid somewhere else. Not that Jesus himself overcame the grave, rolled away his own tomb, and is wandering around the garden waiting to meet his friends. Even when Mary and the other disciples see the grave clothes all neatly folded, they don't think he's done what he's promised to. And the presence of the grave clothes is just weird. I mean, apart from the fact that it's really cute that Jesus folded them up, like that was the thing he decided to do. If you were a grave robber, um, you would have either kept the clothes on to have transported the bodies so that you didn't have all of these like disgusting, sloppy limbs going everywhere, or you would have taken the most valuable item, which was the grave clothes themselves. You wouldn't have just taken the body and left the grave clothes there. But they're there, they're neatly folded. Most of the disciples think he's dead. So they go home and they return back to his lives. In fact, when Jesus then goes and meets Peter and John, they're back at work. They're fishing. They're not going out to um, go and preach the gospel or anything. They're trying to earn money to keep themselves alive. The empty tomb for them wasn't evidence enough of the resurrection. It's not until the next part of the story that they get it. The part where Jesus actually turns up. And Mary stays by the tomb. And we don't know why. Maybe it's because, unlike the others, she lives quite far away and didn't have a life to return back to. Magdalena was really far from Jerusalem. Maybe, actually, we know that she's a wealthy woman. She doesn't need the money, so she doesn't go straight back to work that day. What I hope is that she allowed herself to grieve. And that's why she stayed by the tomb, to mourn for her friend. Perhaps she was remembering Jesus' words a few years earlier where he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We don't know. But remarkably, as she weeps and bends down to look inside the tomb again, she does find comfort, but not in the form that she expected. Down in the tomb, there are two angels sat there on either end of the grave who ask her why she's crying. And just as she starts to explain, she turns around and she sees another man who she thinks must be a gardener who also asks her why she's crying. 
It's not until Jesus calls her by name, says Mary, that she realizes that it's him, it's Jesus, who she'd been looking for all along. It's not the empty tomb, the folded gray clothes, the two angels that convince Mary that Jesus has broken the power of death. It's him. It's the personal encounter that Mary has with God. It's the fact that he calls her by name, that she's known, that she's loved, that makes her believe what he's promised. And that we as well as his followers can also be resurrected with him. So we kind of come to the stage in the story now where we have to make a decision. And I actually think throughout, of our, throughout our lives, we have to keep making this decision. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe this account? For myself, I believe this account for four main reasons. Firstly, Jesus' absence from the tomb. Then his appearance and presence with the disciples, with Mary, and then 500 others. Thirdly, the fact that he converted skeptics like Thomas and Saul, and then the impact of this on the explosion of the Christian faith. But finally, the one that cinches it for me is the impact of my relationship with him and the lives of the people that I know. And that Jesus' tomb was empty is corroborated by other accounts. Um, A number of early critics who aren't Christian, including Tertullian, the Roman historian, accused Jesus' disciples of stealing the body, which indicates, even if they thought the grave, uh, sorry, that indicates that they thought the grave was empty, even if they didn't believe the reasons, uh, the reason for that was the resurrection. And actually, apparently, even the disciples, um, even for the disciples, the empty tomb wasn't actually evidence enough that Jesus um, was resurrected. They don't believe it until they meet him. But I think it is helpful and useful evidence when corroborated with the other sources, because if there had been no empty tomb, no matter how many appearances the disciples claimed, the critics could have always just pointed to the fact that Jesus' body was there in the ground. And it's worth noting as well, although it is possible for people to hallucinate if they're on drugs or if they've got mental health issues, it isn't possible. There is no recorded phenomenon of people having mass hallucinations where hundreds of people believed the same thing or believe that they saw the same thing. Jesus ate with his disciples. He even cooked breakfast for them on one occasion, which was very sweet of him. Um, He has long conversations with them. And meeting Jesus has this incredible effect on this group of people who had given up and gone home. They then go on and risk and then often give their lives to convince people that Jesus really was who he says he was. Um, What am I going to do this? So one of the the things that I often struggle with um, when we're thinking about truth is how can something be true and then not? everybody believe in this. Um, Has anybody read Harry Potter? Uh, I'm assuming yes from the smiles, but in Harry Potter, basically, Harry um, meets with the dark wizard uh, Voldemort, and he has this very awful traumatic experience where Voldemort then goes and kills one of his friends, and he's coming back. And through, um, I think it's the fifth book, Harry uh, spends the whole uh, of that book, and then some of the following books as well, trying to persuade everybody that um, Voldemort is who he says he is and has come back to life. And it will sound a bit silly um, as a story for you, but one of the things that I found really interesting about that is that 
um, it proved at least to me that it is definitely possible for people to not want something to be true. That in the case of Harry Potter, for example, people didn't want Voldemort to come back to life because that meant that they had to change their lives and they had to do something and fight about it. I think it's interesting if we um, examine some of the reasons why we might not want the resurrection to be true. What impact would it have on my life if God really did intervene in this world and really um, that there really is life after death? People die for ideas of duty and love all of the time, but they very rarely die for beliefs that they know to be untrue. And I don't think any of this would have changed my life so powerfully if it weren't for the impact that knowing Jesus has had on my life. My experience of knowing Jesus' love, his peace, his sense of fun, and how that strengthens me to live differently is actually a bit like Mary, the thing that makes all of the difference. Like Mary, my life has been changed by Jesus calling me by name knowing that through his power and love, he's made it possible for all of us to enter into a new creation that doesn't have pain and death. We all long for the solution to the problem of death, but I don't think that the answer is the kind of answer that gets put forward in twilight, where basically, or kind of the answer of modern medicine, where basically we try to elongate this life as long as possible. God isn't in the business of just making our lives go on indefinitely. He wants to come and redeem this world and make everything new. So I put to you, have you examined the evidence of the historical reality of Jesus' life and resurrection? Have you actually weighed it up? Have you challenged why there might be reasons why you don't want it to be true? I have, and I think it's solid enough to base my life on. Um, But if you haven't and you'd like to, why not come and speak to some of the leaders today? Um, Any of the leaders here this afternoon would be really happy to spend some time, um, Chris is nodding really enthusiastically, which is great, um, to spend some time processing with you. If you like to do this by yourself, there are some really good uh, books that I would recommend. So one is um, Tim Keller's Reason for God, and another is uh, Tom Wright's Surprised by Hope. Uh, Both of them are really helpful if you want to consider that within your own time. There's also another great option, which um, Beth spoke about earlier, which is the Alpha course. So this is an eight-week course that um, allows you to hear a short talk about things like the resurrection and whether you can trust the Bible and what about prayer. Um, And then an opportunity to speak with people from all faiths and none about whether they think um, this view is actually realistic and true. Uh, Can the band come up, please? But maybe you have worked through the evidence and decided it's reliable. And I imagine for a lot of the people sat in church today, you probably have done that. Well then, what's the next step? I suppose the next great challenge is how do we live in the light of the resurrection and the world to come? Because when Jesus appeared to Mary in the garden, he said to her, don't cling to me but go and tell everybody else about this amazing thing that has happened. Go and live this life of love. So my challenge for you is to examine yourself with this question. If this is really true, if Jesus has overcome the power of death in my life, 
What does it mean for me? What does it mean that I don't have to worry about? What does it mean for my priorities or my relationships? If he really is Lord of my life, do I act like he loves me that much? Or do I spend quite a bit of time worrying about what people think of me, which I'm definitely guilty of, and also how I need to progress in my career to get purpose in life? I think it can be hard in 2017 in our secular culture to believe in an afterlife. Because, let's face it, until we get there, we can never fully prove um, that it really is true. And it can seem really foolish and naive when eloquent people make beautiful videos um, and say that we can only believe in what we can directly see and experience right now. But there is evidence for the resurrection. And there is evidence that an afterlife uh, is credible and is a real thing. And even if sometimes I can feel a bit like a scientist in the Middle Ages who is determined that the earth is round, whereas everybody else is looking around and saying it's definitely flat, otherwise you would fall off it, I think it's worth um, looking at the evidence and deciding what you think is really true. And if you're like me, you'll find that this evidence leads to the greatest hope that we can have, a hope that transforms our lives and ultimately a hope that overcomes the power of death. So we've, um, we've covered a lot of heavy stuff today. We've talked about demon affliction. We've talked about death. We've talked about philosophy. We've talked about my dating. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I did the talk this morning, I was kind of blown away by this. And what I would say to you right now is if, um, if maybe like Mary Magdalene, you feel that you are um, oppressed by something, uh, maybe a habit that you can't break or a sadness that you're feeling, um, Jesus wants to meet with you today. So I would really encourage you um, either in your seats or the prayer team will be here um, to come and pray with people and speak to people about it. It's also um, a really big challenge to think through some of these philosophical questions. They're frightening. And the last thing I'd encourage you is that if it's true, it's not going to fall over. So keep interrogating it. Keep stamping on it. You're not going to fall, or don't like stamp to crush on it, but like stamp on it like, like the floor, right? It's going to hold you up. Don't be frightened um, about interrogating the evidence and seeing for yourself. Um, and so now I'm just going to bring uh, our talk today to a close, lucky you, um, with a short prayer, and then uh, the band will just lead us in worship. So, uh, Father God, I thank you um, that you made the whole universe, um, that, but not only that, that you decided that you wanted to come down to earth and know us as people. God, you knew us before we were born and you know really trivial stuff about us like the hairs on our heads and you care about all of those things. And God, I just really pray that um, for folk here who are grieving, God, or are feeling um, oppressive sadness, I pray that you would be comforting them today. And God, I also pray that you would just be filling us with the amazing hope that comes from knowing um, that you are God, you are powerful, and ultimately that you were resurrected and have given us resurrection life. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.